You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. I'm June Grosso. Every day we bring you insight and analysis into the most important legal news of the day. You can find more episodes of the Bloomberg Law Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcasts. It may seem like deja vu, the U.S. government arguing in court that it can detain a U.S. citizen indefinitely as an enemy combatant without giving him access to an attorney that he's asked for. A D.C. federal judge said the government was trying to do an end run around the right to habeas corpus, a basic constitutional right to challenge detention. The unidentified American has been held by the U.S. military in Iraq since he was captured in Syria in September after allegedly fighting on behalf of ISIS. Joining me is William Banks, a professor at Syracuse University Law School. Bill, set the stage for this week's hearing by telling us how Judge Tanya Chutkin has had to use court orders to get basic information from the government. It really is quite an extraordinary situation. Uh, this this man, we're, we're calling him John Doe because we do not know his identity. He's been held uh, by the government since September. He, he either surrendered or was apprehended uh, by the Syrian Democratic Forces and then handed over to the United States and taken to Iraq, where he's been ever since. The government has not let us know his name, the circumstances of his capture or, or uh, turning himself in or uh, his current status, except to say that he's being held there. Uh, it, it's, it's certainly possible that the government has the legal right to detain uh, this man, uh, the Supreme Court held in the uh, 2004 decision called Hamdi versus Rumsfeld that the, that the government may have a right to detain even a citizen combatant who is fighting for an enemy in an armed conflict against the United States. In that case, the, the citizen is no different than any other enemy if he's bringing arms against the United States. What's so extraordinary here is that the government has not afforded this young man an opportunity to contest the circumstances of his detention, that is, to have his day in court. The ACLU has filed a habeas corpus petition on behalf of this unidentified American. What were the Justice Department's arguments against that petition? The the arguments really weren't uh, legal arguments at all. They simply argued that it, that it wasn't time yet, that they were still trying to determine uh, what to do with them? There, there, of course, you know, are various possibilities here, but the possibilities are are stretching credibility now that it's been more than twelve weeks since he's been detained. One is that 
they uh, were trying to amass evidence with which they could charge him in a regular civilian court in the United States. As as many of your listeners know, the United States routinely brings captured uh, alleged terrorists to the United States to stand trial, and that system works quite well. Uh, second possibility is that they uh, are trying to arrange for transfer of him to a third country somewhere that might take him with this, with this man's consent, uh, even though he is a United States citizen, that could be taking uh, a lengthier period of time. And the third possibility is less favorable to the government, uh, which is that they simply don't know what to do uh, with this guy, uh, wh- whether to prosecute him, let him go, which is yet another possibility, or transfer him somewhere. So the government admits that the detainee asked for a lawyer before he would go forward with questioning. At that point, wasn't the government required to provide him with a lawyer, which they don't want to give him through the ACLU, apparently? Well, that's the standard interpretation that most of us would have for uh, what we call the Miranda rights. When you read him as rights in a law enforcement interrogation, you told you have a right to an attorney. But that right actually doesn't attach until the government moves to bring a case against you. So he's in a limbo now. He's being held. He's not being prosecuted. He's simply being held. So following the Miranda principle, he doesn't have that right to the attorney until the government takes the next step. And it's uh, it's kind of circular because they they say we're not ready to take the next step yet. Now, let's discuss what is settled law and what is not. You mentioned the Supreme Court's ruling in Hamdi v. Rumsfeld that the government can detain U.S. citizens as enemy combatants, but they have the right to challenge their detention before a neutral arbiter. What are the questions that are still open? How long is too long, and who decides? Right. Well, Judge Chutkin in the district court in Washington will make that decision preliminarily, and we we hope and expect that she could be making that any day now, ordering the government to provide him uh, a counsel who could then uh, bring his habeas corpus uh, case in a federal court in the United States. As I said a moment ago, once once that case is brought, the government may well win it. But the important principle, of course, is to reinforce his right to have his day in court. The other things uh, that are not settled yet is, of course, uh, what he was doing, what he did that uh, would, would justify his detention. Uh, sometimes uh, somebody captured is, uh, or turned himself in is, is not necessarily culpable as, uh, as a member of an armed force uh, fighting against the United States. There, there are facts to be heard here. Bill, is this the same issue that came up under the George W. Bush administration, or is it different? Well, it's, it is the same in the sense that we're in the Hamdi case, we had someone who was allegedly, or originally rather, thought to be an alien fighting for the Taliban who was sent to Guantanamo Bay. And after some period of time, it was discovered that Hamdi had actually uh, was born in, in the United States. So he was transferred to a military brig in South Carolina rather than held at Guantanamo. Guantanamo was reserved for uh, non-citizen aliens. Uh, who were uh, unlawful combatants picked up in the so-called war on terror. So it's it's uh, it's a little bit alike, but somewhat different because this uh, this individual, of course, uh, was presented to the United States uh, in a combat zone and being held uh, still in what you could call a combat zone by the U.S. officials. 
Judge Chutkin said what the government suggests is an end run around the right to habeas. He wants counsel, which is an assertion and request that I don't think I can ignore. Is she signaling pretty clearly how she's going to rule? I think she is. And she's, I think, been uh, remarkably patient with uh, the government here trying to give it time to make more uh, coherent arguments that would justify the continuing refusal to provide him counsel. I suspect we're going to find an order to provide him counsel and then a a habeas petition forthwith. The Supreme Court has turned down a chance to decide whether the federal law protecting workers against discrimination based on sex also protects workers from discrimination based on sexual orientation. The circuit courts are divided on the question of whether Title VII covers gay workers, and so are the EEOC and the Justice Department. The justices did not explain their reasoning for turning down the case of a hospital security guard in Georgia who said she was discriminated against because she was gay. Joining me is Anthony Christ, professor at the Chicago Chicago Kent College of Law. Anthony, the circuits are split. The Seventh Circuit ruled sexual orientation discrimination is a form of gender bias protected by Title VII. The Eleventh Circuit ruled it's not, and the Second Circuit is considering it now. Isn't this the type of confusion that the Supreme Court is supposed to clear up? Yeah, absolutely. I I think that the court, um, in not hearing this case, has only delayed uh, the timing of when they will actually decide uh, a case of this sort. Um, this case wasn't a particularly great vehicle to decide this, this issue. I mean, it's a, it's a big issue. Um, and so certainly the court would want uh, a clean case. Um, there were some procedural problems with uh, the defendants claiming they weren't properly served. Um, and in fact, Jamika Evans has a potential uh, remedy as a, as a traditional gender nonconformity claim that's uh, removed from her sexual orientation claim. So I think that there were a lot of factors here that might have not made this the best case for the court to take up to decide this this incredibly important issue. Tell us what the argument is on both sides. So the argument in favor of of expanding uh, our understanding of what sex discrimination is, is that effectively, if if you take into consideration uh, a person's sexual orientation, you're taking into account that person's sex and the sex of uh, the people that they form intimate relationships with. And so if you're taking sex into account at all, that's a, a plain form of sex discrimination uh, that Title VII uh, w- was you know, enacted to, to, to remove from the workplace. Um, the, the, the counter response is, well, homophobia is a different and distinct form of bias that's not uh, sexism, and so these are distinct things. Um, and that Congress, when they enacted Title VII's protections in 1964, um, were really thinking about protecting men versus women in the workplace, um, you know, basic biological sex. And they weren't thinking about sexual orientation or LGBT people. And so these things are distinct issues. Um, and if the court or, or if, if Congress wants to amend Title VII to include LGBT discrimination claims, then they're free to do so. Anthony, is it important to gay rights groups to get this issue before the court, before Justice Anthony Kennedy retires? And that could be this term. Yeah, I, I think the timing here is, is incredibly important. Um, I, I think gay rights uh, groups certainly would like this, this case, a type of case like this uh, to come before the court, before Justice Kennedy retires, if he does. Um, it certainly would be a lot easier of a road 
for for advocates in that sense, um, you know, if Justice Kennedy is on the court as opposed to uh, someone who President Trump would nominate uh, to replace him in the, within the next few months. So how did it? How does it affect rights in the workplace that in the same court case, the Second Circuit case in New York, which I was talking about before, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission was arguing that Title VII protects against discrimination based on sexual orientation, while the Justice Department was arguing that it doesn't? Yeah, it's a very unusual situation where you have two different entities within the federal government taking opposite views. Um, the EEOC is, of course, the agency that Congress charged with the responsibility of um, enforcing Title VII, and so they they get a considerable amount of of um, uh, of deference in the sense that uh, you know that, that they're the experts in in this field. Um, but the Department of Justice certainly has you know they've claimed that as the nation's largest employer, the federal government has a has an important uh, interest in. Uh, Title VII and the administration of Title VII, um, and you know it's it's not surprising that the political appointees that were put in place by the Trump administration um, in the Department of Justice took this position, um, given you know Attorney General Sessions and a number of high-profile people in the Trump administration have generally been um, uneasy with uh, pro-LGBT policies and, and pro uh, or policies that protect LGBT. Uh, employees and workers. Anthony, some states do have laws that protect against workplace discrimination. So is Title VII less important in those states? Uh, it, it depends on a state-by-state basis. Um, there are a number of states where uh, you, know, you certainly have co-equal protections, but there are many states, many, many states, in fact, that, that do not. Um, and it's important to have, I think it's important to have access to um, you know, to, to have access to robust uh, protections and, and have protections for people um, on a federal level because uh, it's important that we have uniform laws. The patchwork laws where LGBT people are protected in certain situations and, and not in other states, um, uh, it's fundamentally unworkable. Um, and I think we need a national resolution to this for, for every LGBT employee to know that they, uh, you know, they're free from, that, that they're protected from workplace bias, workplace discrimination, no matter what state they, they live and work in. Just briefly, might this Second Circuit case be the one that the court takes? Yeah, I think this is an ideal vehicle for it. The real question is, at the end of the day, uh, does the employer want to be the face of, of defending this at the Supreme Court? Um, they may not necessarily appeal, but that you know, time will tell uh, if that happens. Always a pleasure to have you on. That's Professor Anthony Kreis of the Chicago Kent College of Law. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcast. I'm June Grosso. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.